0: in the book of Ephesians, back to the book of Ephesians, um, picking up where we left off in December. And in six months of studying the book of Ephesians, we covered three chapters, and for those of you who are visiting us, uh, I to welcome you this morning, but our priority is to take the word of God very, very seriously and to dig into it in a real sort of in-depth way, to pick it apart. Every, every word of Scripture is God-breathed, and if it's important enough for God to breathe it, it's important enough for us to study it and pick it apart. So we don't mind kind of hovering over verses and, and taking our time. We're not in a hurry. We don't mind digging into it. We, we don't want to just have sort of a nice little shallow, uh, mashed potato sort of a diet. We want to get into the Word, get into the meat, and uh, trust the Lord to apply it to our lives, though we're at different stages in our walk. Ephesians 1 through 3, we've seen over the last six months, if you've been with us during this time, uh, it it constitutes the first half of the book of Ephesians, and it's about the believer's identity in Christ. Chapters 4 through 6, that we're entering into now, are about how to walk that identity in Christ, how to live that out, how to apply everything that Paul told us we are in chapters 1 through 3, and it's wasn't planned that we would be entering into this new section of Ephesians uh, with our move, but it just turned out that way and it feels right. I think that as a church we're at a new stage now. We're at a new, we're we're like phase two of Woodland Hills and uh, uh, so we're going to be digging into this and we'll probably be doing this up through June, I suspect. So we're uh, this morning talking on Ephesians chapter four, verse one. I think it's printed in the bullet, your bulletins, otherwise you can read it uh, in your Bibles. where Paul says this, as, the, as a prisoner for the Lord, or in the Greek it could be as a prisoner of the Lord, or even as a prisoner to the Lord. As a prisoner of the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. That's all the farther we're going to get this morning. Live a life, or walk, in a way that is worthy of the calling you have received. I told someone last night that I was going to... They, they asked me, uh, what, what was I going to pre- be preaching on? I said, well, I'm going to be preaching on the worthy walk. And he goes, oh, oh, oh boy. <laughs> and for a lot of believers, this is kind of a scary verse. Walking worthy of the Lord. And it's like grace ends... Great, grace has ended and now it's time to start doing the do's and don'ts. We're going to see that that's not at all what that verse means. But let's, uh, let's first pray. Father, we ask that your spirit would inhabit these words and inhabit, Lord God, the word of God going forth. And we're instructed enough to know that human words alone never can produce results in our life. You, Lord, by your spirit and your tender grace infusing fallible human words, Lord, you are able to bring about kingdom fruit and only you can bring about kingdom fruit. So we ask, Lord, that you'd be present with us and I know your word as it goes forth, and open up our ears, we pray in your name. Amen. There's, there's only two words I want to talk about this morning. I want to talk about, in, in verse 1, I want to talk about the word prisoner. Prisoner, and I want to talk about the word worthy. Prisoner and worthy, and they are very much connected. First of all, prisoner. The first thing out of Paul's mouth as he's turning to now talk about the Christian walk, the first thing out of his mouth is this word prisoner. He notes that he is a prisoner of the Lord or to the Lord. And in doing that, he's already setting up for the Ephesians a model of what the Christian walk is supposed to be like. It's a walk of imprisonment to the Lord. He's a prisoner of the Lord, and in various ways we'll see in the next three chapters, Paul is going to be saying... Don't just do what I say, do what I do. Look at the model of my life. I am a prisoner of the Lord. That's essentially what the Christian walk is all about. Now, when I hear the word prisoner, when you hear the word prisoner, the idea of becoming a prisoner doesn't sound all that exciting. <laughs> oh, good. We, we, we get to be imprisoned. Uh, when you think of a prisoner, you think of someone who has lost all of their rights. think of somebody who has lost all of their freedom. You think of somebody who's behind bars. You think of somebody maybe, and this is certainly true in the first century, who was probably involved in slave labor, labor without pay. And, and so when we hear the word prisoner Lord, and that's a model of the Christian walk, we instinctively want to go, yeah, Oh, that sounds really great. What a great selling point. You know, give an altar call. Hey, come forward and be a prisoner. Especially in our culture, because our culture is fueled, if it's fueled by anything, it's fueled by an idea that that the highest thing in life is to not be a prisoner to anybody and not be a prisoner to anything. But you got to live out your freedom. You got to live out your individuality. You got to express yourself. Being bondage to no one, being bondage to nothing. Don't be restricted by responsibilities and moral codes over and above yourself. But if it feels right, you do it. If you want it, go after it. That's kind of the thing that fuels our culture. And it's certainly one of the things that's driving our culture down into a a whole, because if you get a whole society of people who are all about doing their own little thing and run away from, running away from all sorts of restrictions, you get that. It's chaos. But that's what our culture is all about. So when we hear the word prisoner, we think of something that is not very desirable. What does Paul mean when he says that he's a prisoner of the Lord? It's kind of interesting. I didn't notice this until this week when I, when I uh, started putting together this sermon, but... Paul, when he was writing the book of Ephesians, was a prisoner. He was a prisoner of Rome. He was—you uh, can read about this stage of his life at the end of the book of Acts. He was a prisoner of Rome, and uh, it's kind of interesting that he—he he here notes what's significant to Paul is not that he's a prisoner of Rome, but that he's a prisoner of the Lord. Even though he is a prisoner of Rome, he doesn't even mention that. But he's a prisoner of the Lord. What was also interesting is this. The kind of imprisonment that, that Paul was in, we find in the book of Acts, was a low-security kind of a imprisonment. It wasn't like being in a dark cell. He was in a house or a cottage of some sort that he didn't own. It was owned by the Roman government. And he was under house arrest. He didn't have any say to what went on in that house, and he couldn't leave that house. They had guards around it. But he was able. They let him teach the gospel from that house. I didn't notice this when we were talking about it back in chapter 3, but do you remember five, six weeks ago when we were talking about Ephesians chapter 3? Paul there prays, and we saw it was really significant, that Paul prayed that Christ would come and dwell in our hearts. That Christ would come and dwell in our hearts. And we saw that the word dwell there meant to take up residence in, to have ownership of. It almost sounds like, and maybe I'm reading too much into it, but it doesn't matter because the point's the same. That Paul's idea of us being a prisoner to the Lord is that our hearts, which is our heart has become the home of Christ and Christ is to own it, our lives are to be under house arrest. To be a prisoner of the Lord for Paul means that we allow Christ to come and take ownership of our hearts. We allow Christ to come and take ownership of our innermost beings. To be a prisoner of the Lord means that we ask Christ to be Lord of our hearts, therefore Lord of our thoughts, Lord of our feelings, Lord of our rights, Lord of our ambitions, Lord of our goals, Lord of our families, Lord of our jobs, Lord over everything that we're a part of. To be captivated by Jesus Christ. To let Him have ownership of the whole thing. What characterizes, what fuels the Christian life is being imprisoned to Jesus Christ so that our perspective becomes his perspective. Our way of viewing ourselves becomes his way of viewing us. Or rather, our way it follows his way of viewing us. And our way of viewing others is Christ's way of viewing others. And our value system is his value system. And ultimately, to be a prisoner of the Lord means that, that God's glory is more important than my than my reputation. And God's kingdom is more important than whatever kingdom I might build. And God's ambitions are more important than my ambitions. And God's will has priority over my will, my comfort, my pleasure, my convenience. It means ultimately, it means ultimately, as Paul tells us elsewhere, to be crucified, to be crucified. So that it's no longer us, us independent people who live, but Christ who lives through us. And if you're hearing this in the flesh, if you're hearing this according to the natural man, if you're hearing this in an unregenerate way, it's got to sound restrictive. It's got to sound oppressive. You're ruining my rights. You're ruining my individuality. How can you possibly surrender your will and your ambitions and all of that over to someone else? But if you're hearing it the way that it's communicated, if you're hearing it with a regenerate heart and regenerate ears, you know that this imprisonment it's not the ruining of individuality it's the discovering of individuality and it's not the it's it's not ruining freedom it is the discovery of freedom Amen to be a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ is the highest kind of freedom possible Amen Because it means two things it means first of all freedom from the self When we live our life trying to establish our own identity and our own rights, we are in bondage. It means freedom from the pettiness and the narrowness of the self that lives its life out saying, I want, I got to get, I got to establish, I got to defend, you offended me, da-da-da-da. Always trying to be in strife, always trying to establish the perimeters of of what you own and who you are over and against other people. That kind of petty addiction to the self-absorption, It's gone when you surrender it to the Lord Jesus Christ because now you're identified with someone who is infinitely greater than yourself and you're released from that bondage of always trying to get your way and establish your rights and defend yourself. That is bondage. But it's also freedom in a second, even more profound way, and it's this. To be a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ is to be a prisoner to everything your heart has really always longed for. All the stuff you were trying to get through your own decision-making freedom, you get when you surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because to be a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ is to be a prisoner of love itself. To be a prisoner of God's love. And folks, that ain't so bad. To be a prisoner of God's power, to be a prisoner of God's joy, to be captivated by God's grace, to be enthralled with God's mercy, to be ruled with God's presence, that is a wonderful, beautiful kind of imprisonment. All the things that we try to get by not being a prisoner to anybody, we get when we become a prisoner to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus meant when he said, if you lose your life, you find it. But if you try to find your life, you're going to lose it when you strive trying to acquire joy and happiness and peace and power, which is what everyone's about, when you try to do that on your own, you never, you never arrive at it. But when you say, Lord, captivate me by your love, you find it. When you say, Lord, enthrall me with your power, bar me in with your grace, chain me with your peace, Throw me in the deepest cell and dungeon of your grace. When you say that and surrender your life, you know what? All the things your heart desired are there and they're found. To be a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ is the highest, most beautiful kind of freedom that humans can ever have. But as long as we live our life with a foot out of prison, and I know I do that a lot, The foot out of prison, or my attitudes out of prison, or my this one desire out of prison. To that extent, I never enter into the beauty of all this that the Lord can give me if he makes me his prisoner. The only way that we ever discover all the things, the only way we really possess what our hearts desire is to be possessed by our heart's desire. And that is to be a prisoner of the Lord Jesus. Look at your life and ask yourself the question are you a prisoner? to what extent are you a prisoner what are areas of your life are outside of his lordship to walk the christian walk in the end is nothing other than to live life as a prisoner to the lord jesus christ which is to say to live life in perfect freedom and we come to this word worthy therefore walk a life that is worthy of the lord and it's at this point i hear music coming out of this this thing is picking up a radio station. There, Now it's not. OK, now I'm ready to, to take this off. All right. At this point, people begin to again like, "Oh, oh, here, here, the grace is gone now, and now it's time to start getting tough and raise up the standard, and whoa. I get a little nervous about this. I, I, is this uh, going to be graceful or what? Because a lot of people have been beating up with, with talk about, "Are you worthy?" I think it's because there are several false readings of this verse that are around and that are quite prevalent. On the one hand, I could take this verse, therefore, you know, live a life that is worthy of your calling, and I could ask the question, saints of God, with fiery eyes and a beating heart, are you worthy today? (laughs) Have you made yourself worthy of the Lord or has He wasted His blood on your life? Woo! Now we're preaching. I can construe this verse, and it is often construed, and I, my earliest exposure to Christianity was in a form of religion where it was construed such that all the stuff of Ephesians 1 through 3, the salvation, the glory, the power, all of that is contingent upon me making myself worthy. God will not fellowship with an unrighteous vessel, so if you want God's fellowship, you've got to make yourself unrighteous, prove that you're worthy, and then you'll discover the goods of the Christian life and maybe be saved. Are you worthy? And you've got to make yourself worthy. You spend your life trying to make yourself worthy. This turns Christ into sort of an employer where uh, all the goods of salvation and stuff are sort of the, the payment for, for, for services rendered. There's another way of interpreting this verse that's not quite as outlandish, but it's still it basically, I think, comes to the same thing. In this view, you could kind of construe the gift of salvation as a as, as a gift with strings attached. In this view, you've got salvation and you've got the goods of the Christian life. But now I now I could preach the verse kind of by saying, uh, "Are you walking? Are you walking in a way that that proves that you were worth it? Are you, are you?" It's like, it's like it's like giving uh, keys to a teenager with a new car and saying, now show me that you're worthy of this. It's like giving a gift where it, it, do you ever get gifts like this where you, you get the gift and it's supposed to be for free. But then it's all of a sudden you discover that there's obligations that go along with it. Uh, you know, that uh, all sorts of strings attached. Of course you will and I'll be over to visit us every other week. You know we 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 did help you buy that car. I had a student one time who, uh, whose grandparents, great people, uh, they gave this, this student uh, a lot of money, a gift of, of a lot of money, $30,000 or so, to help go, get through college. Talked to the student about three years later and asked some questions about how your life's going, and basically their life was totally controlled by the grandparents. He, he wasn't allowed to uh, take a job in a different city because how could he possibly abandon his grandparents? and move away from home after all that they had done for him. And they would remind him of this wonderful gift that they had given him whenever they wanted him to be a certain kind of person and do a certain kind of thing. You know, come over and mow the lawn for us. Come over and pick up. Come over and visit us three nights a week. After all, we you know show our love for you by giving you all this money. Yuck! It's all these strings attached. Or Someone gives you a shirt, and then they, every time you're not wearing that shirt, they want to know why. It's like, was this my shirt or not? You know what I'm talking about. Some of you, every gift you get is a gift with strings attached. And that's what salvation begins to look like. It's a free gift. But, of course, it's understood now that you are going to show that you were worthy of this gift. It's like credit card Christianity. You know, when you buy things with a credit card, it feels like you get it for free. But you end up paying it back the rest of your life. And in this view, Christ becomes kind of a manipulative grandparent. And I think this view is kind of prevalent even among people who talk a lot about grace. Where you have, you know, you can preach a sermon. After all Jesus has done for you, is it so much to ask this of you? Is it too much to ask you to give up this and do that when he's done all this for you? Remember, that there's a song that was out, this radio station used to always play it, at the clo- when they'd clo- sign off at 1 o'clock in the morning, an AM Christian station, and the song was, um, I wonder if I've done my best for Jesus. After all he's done for me. And the guy's like crying when he's singing. I wonder if I've done my best for it. It's like it, it, the guy's heart's breaking because he knows that he hasn't. And you know, if that came out of a, if that came out of a, a heart that just was full of gratitude, I want to do my best for Jesus because of all, all he's done for me. If it comes from the inside, that's a good thing. Do that. That's wonderful. I think that's a healthy thing. But when it comes from the outside in, have you done your best today? After all he's done for you, How could you do that when he gave up so much? And it becomes kind of a shaming thing. Aren't you worthy of the walk? Is it so much to ask you? So Christ becomes a manipulative grandparent. What I want you to know this morning, before we even talk about what the word worthy means, is this. So important. That Christ Christ is not your employer, and Christ is not a manipulative grandparent. Christ is a loving Savior. And when the Lord says, I love you for free, he means it's for free. There's no strings attached. There's no payback kind of a thing. There's no kind of manipulative agenda here. It's not just an advance on services rendered. He means it's for free. When the Bible says you're saved by grace, it means that you're saved by grace. No ifs, ands, buts, conditions, maybes, whatever, paybacks. And when the Bible says that whosoever believes shall be saved, and the Bible says by faith alone, by trusting Christ alone, you are saved by grace so that no one can boast, it means that you're saved by faith, through grace, nothing else. No strings, no ifs, no ands, no buts, no paybacks, no whatever. It's for free. And the minute we, you know, the glory of God, the, the, the wonder of his grace, the incomprehensibility of his love, all of that, is shown off by the giftness of salvation, the radical freedom of salvation, the irrationality of God's grace that cleanses you and washes you and redeems you for free. That's what shows off the the glory of God, and we're called to be vessels of God's grace before we're called to do anything else. But the minute we start talking about earning it and paying it back, we ruin all of that. We put conditions on it. We make God into a very predictable kind of employer or manipulative grandparent, and we totally ruin and undermine Throw mud on the gospel of irrational, incomprehensible grace and freedom. There's no way we're going to pay it back, folks. This thing is way, way, way too great, too big, too beautiful to ever be paid back. You think you can pay it back? If you try to pay it back, what happens to people? If you, if you spend your life trying to pay it back or spend your life trying to earn it, one of two things happen. If you're a shallow person who doesn't introspect much, you might be able to actually convince yourself that you are worthy of it and you become a self-righteous Pharisee. If you've got more introspection and a little more awareness of God's holiness and you're trying to pay it back, you'll end up a very tired, fatigued, and shamed Christian. What I know is that a lot of you here have been through systems like that. Which is why, when you hear the, the, the passage, are you walking worthy of the Lord, you start to flinch. It's like, no, no, no. <laughs> let's stick in one through three. I like chapters one through three. This stuff, I, let's not get to that. Well, what does the word worthy mean? What does the word worthy mean? This is really interesting, but you're going to have to hang with me on this. The word worthy, Paul says, live a life that's worthy of the calling. The, wor- the, the root meaning of the word worthy is to balance. To balance in a scale. It means to be in equilibrium or to have a corresponding weight. It comes out of the marketplace in the first century. You know, when they would try when they do barter system, whatever, they'd weigh certain things. I'll trade you a pound of rice for a pound of clay or something. And so you, you, you weigh it. Okay, this weight corresponds to this weight. We got a deal. Or it's the same thing today. If, if you want to buy my car for $100, um, First of all, you're going to get ripped off. But if you do want to, you know, buy, buy my car for $100, it's got one door that almost works, then you can, the $100, if it's a good deal, the $100 corresponds to the value of the car, okay? It's a balancing kind of a thing. Now, what is in the balance here? What, what is in the balance here? The crucial word in Ephesians 4.1, the crucial word here, it's a very small word, it's the word then. Or in Greek, therefore. In fact, you'll find that whenever Paul talks about ethics or doing the Christian life, almost always in the, in the epistles, there's always a therefore that precedes it. Follow me on this. The therefore always refers back to what preceded that verse. Blah, 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 therefore this. Paul says, I, a prisoner of the Lord, therefore urge you to walk a walk that is worthy of your calling. What does the therefore refer to? Folks, it refers to what he just told us in chapters 1 through 3. It refers to our identity in Christ. It refers to who we are in Christ. And what Paul, in essence, is saying is this. Here's what's in the balance. Because of chapters 1 through 3, therefore chapters 4 through 6. Because of who you are in Christ, Live a life that corresponds to who you are in Christ. He's not saying try to get, he's not saying try to get worth, try to get weight, as it were, try to get value so you can get your identity. You've got your identity, therefore live it. He's not saying that because you have an identity, you should try to pay it back or try to, you know work this thing off or show that, show that God made a good investment in you. He's simply saying that because it is true, because it is settled, that on this side of the way, you have got your identity in Christ, your glory in Christ, and all the great things that Ephesians 1 through 3 told you about. Because of that, therefore, let your life be in equilibrium with that. Let it be balanced with that. Let it correspond to that. Think of it this way. Think of it this way. I don't know if this analogy is going to work, but we'll try it. Let's say I'm a real, real rich person. I'm the richest man in the world, and I have got a a crazy thing in my life here where I just want to go downtown Minneapolis and I want to find a derelict, somebody who's a Park Bench drunk. I want to take them, and they've been a Park Bench drunk all of their life. I mean, when they were two, they were a Park Bench drunk, and I'm going to take them, and and I'm going to, I want them to live as a millionaire. Okay, now there's a couple ways I could do that. On the one hand, I could go up to this Park Bench drunk and I could say, "You want to be a millionaire?" And he'd go, "I want to be a millionaire." And so I could say, well, I'll tell you what, I'm going to teach you what people do to become a millionaire. You can come and work for me, and I'll pay you what I pay everybody. And, and if you work hard, and if you strive hard, if you, if you really go at it, and you learn to trade real good and are persistent with it, you'll earn millions, because a lot of other people have earned millions this way. That, that approach to salvation would be Christ the employer. Or I could actually give the guy a uh, million dollars, and I could say, you know what? Here's a million dollars. It's a gift. Of course, it's understood now that uh, uh, you will be grateful to me, and therefore, uh, I can expect you over at my house at 7 in the morning to start doing some house chores. And, and you know, you, you can show your gratitude to me, you know, and I, can start, I start pulling the strings. Uh, and basically what I did, that, that view is the same as the first view, except this time I gave the money in advance. <laughs> and, and now I'm saying, now no, show me that, that, that you really were worth it. I believe in you. Don't let me down. Don't disappoint me. Live a life that's worthy. Or I could do it another way. This is the way Christ does it. Christ comes to us. He comes to Greg Boyd, a sinful derelict, a derelict intoxicated with himself, intoxicated with sin, fallen, park bench, park park bench, intoxicant all of his life, spiritually speaking. He comes to Greg Boyd and he says, "Greg, I love you. I love you, and you know what? I want you to live as a millionaire." In fact. I'm going to give you a million dollars. In fact, what I'm going to do, Greg, it just, it, 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 will you receive this? If you'll receive this, it's true. I want to give you uh, the, the passbook to my whole, my whole bank account. And then I, I want, you know what, Greg, why don't you start wearing my clothes? I want to robe you in my clothes. i got some really nice clothes, and I want to, I want to robe you in, in my clothes. And not only that, but, you know, I, I, why don't you have the keys to my house? i got this mansion. Why don't you come and, and, and just kind of hang out in that mansion? In fact, i got keys to a, you know it, Ferrari, and I'd like you to drive this Ferrari. I really would like you to go with this thing. Greg, it's all yours. You've got it right there. And, and I know that you're a drunk, and you think like a drunk, and you act like a drunk, and you really, you know, what's, in, what's ingrained in your brain, is that you're a loser. So I'm going to walk alongside of you and I'm going to kind of teach you the ways of living like a millionaire. I'm going to teach you how to how to walk in this stuff. That's the way the Lord approaches us and what we need to see, believer, is this that we are in fact spiritually speaking billionaires. We are billionaires. The Bible has told us, we saw this in Ephesians 1 through 3. The Bible has told us that we have inherited the inheritance of God. He's given to us the keys of the kingdom. The Bible tells us that we have, we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. And he's robed us with his own clothing. He, the moment you believe, he robs us. He puts on you the garment of salvation. He wraps you in his holiness. So that now, from the divine perspective, you are holy, you are pure, and you are spotless. It's a done thing. And then he gives us the keys to his mansion and he gives us salvation, the Ferrari that he wants us to drive. And through his spirit, through his spirit, he dwells in us, trying to get us to live that way, to think that way. And in the end, what it is. What the whole Christian life comes to, it's a matter of learning how to walk and live and think the way you in fact are. You are saved. Begin to think it. Begin to feel it. Begin to breathe it. You're redeemed. Begin to live it. Begin to think it. Begin to feel it. You are filled with the Spirit of God. Begin to live it. Begin to think it. Begin to act that way. Let it begin to permeate your life. You're filled with God's joy. You don't need to be a beggar of depression anymore. Begin to think it. Begin to live it. Begin to behave that way. Begin to let it be expressed in your attitudes. And you're filled with the confidence of God. You don't need to be a beggar of insecurity all of your life. You're filled with the confidence of God. If that's a true thing, let your life be in equilibrium with that. Let it be true on the outside what is true on the inside. You are loved with an everlasting love. You don't need to be a beggar of always being hungry for affection and love in your life. You're loved with an everlasting love. If that is true, Walk the walk that is worthy of that. Walk the walk that corresponds to that. Walk what is in equilibrium with that. Let be true on the outside what is true on the inside. And it's got nothing to do with paying God back. You're never going to do that. It certainly has got nothing to do with earning this thing. You've already got it. But it's got everything to do, and this is what the Christian life comes to, with living who you really are. Living who you really are. That we do that is urgent. This this doesn't mean that living the Christian life is a kind of a a secondary addendum. Paul here says, I urge you to live the life that is worthy of your calling, that is in equilibrium with your calling. I urge you. The Greek word there is an intensive verb. It means to beg. In Galatians, Paul Paul said to the Galatians, I have labor pains over you until Christ is fully formed in you. This is an urgent matter. Because until this happens, Christians, we always live like beggars, though we're rich. For our sake, we never move into the goods of the Christian life. But even more importantly, God is not glorified. And we are saved, ultimately, to glorify God by being prisoners in a beautiful, beautiful way. The Bible says, Ephesians 1 saw, told us that we are vessels of God's grace. We're trophies of God's grace. God wants to set us up and say, look what I have done. Before all the angelic hosts, throughout all eternity, he wants to show forth little mirrors of himself. When we're not corresponding to that, we conceal the glory of God. And because Paul's a prisoner of Jesus, he sees things the way Jesus does, and the glory of God is a very important thing to be shown forth. It's urgent that we do it. But we do it not by trying to earn it or to pay back. We do it by being transformed on the inside with who we really are. And what does that mean? And how do we do that? That's the second half of my sermon, and I like to begin, but no, I'm kidding. (laughs) This is some of the stuff we're going to talk about in the next two weeks. A lot of people have a screwy, screwy idea of what worthy means. uh, And and so we're going to talk about that starting, starting next week. This morning, I just want to end with this word and this prayer. Let the Lord begin to in your inner being, drive home the truth of who you are in Christ Jesus. And begin to surrender to that. On a moment-by-moment basis, surrender to that. And let it begin to transform who you are on the outside, your attitudes, your mind, and everything about you. Well, We'll never be worthy of God on our own. It comes by the grace of God working through us, taking our identity and pushing outward. Father, Father, we thank you, Lord, because you have, by virtue of the cross, made us new creatures in Christ Jesus. It is a done deal. You have redeemed us, Lord, and that is a done deal. You have saved us, and that is a done deal, Lord. You have washed us, and that is a done deal, Lord. You've filled us with your Spirit, and that is a done deal, Lord, and we thank you for the done deal. Lord, what we are in bondage, we know, to various things in our life that are as if that were not true. Lord, begin to just bulldoze over those things from the inside out in our life that our outside life might correspond to who we are in you. We ask this in your name.